Why don't we trust the experts? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Eric Merkley. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Eric Merkley. Eric is a SSHRC postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto. He is also the lead survey analyst for the Media Ecosystem Observatory and Digital Democracy Project teams. Having recently received his PhD at UBC's Department of Political Science, he specializes in political communication, public opinion, and American and Canadian politics. Broadly speaking, he notes his interest in how elite behavior and the mass media together shape public attitudes, with a particular focus on areas of scientific and economic consensus. Among other publications, he's had work featured in the Journal of Politics, the British Journal of Political Science, Political Communication, Public Opinion Quarterly, American Politics Research, and the International Journal of Public Opinion Research. Eric, welcome to The Curious Task. It's a pleasure being here. Great to have you, Eric. So we base each episode on a question and go wherever the conversation takes us. Our question today is, why don't we trust the experts? And there's more than one angle to enter this conversation in general, of course. So let's start with one of the pillars in some of your work, uh, if you don't mind, anti-intellectualism. So according to some of your work, it seems that we shouldn't always think of distrust of experts as a case-by-case issue per issue thing. One of your papers claims that more attention needs to be given to an overall anti-intellectual sentiment in populations. So to start with, what do you mean by anti-intellectual? Yeah. So what I mean by that is a generalized distrust of experts, whatever kind. Um, so, you know, tend to, we, we tend to, to think of experts in kind of specific domains. You've got doctors, scientists, economists, and the like, uh, and even more kind of specialized uh, areas of expertise like lawyers. Um, and what 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 I'm trying to say in that piece is that actually, like if you trust if you trust one group of experts, you're probably likely to trust them across the board. And if you tr- distrust one group of experts, you tend to distrust them across the board. And there's a tendency in prior literature to focus on just scientists or just economists. And these all these 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 uh, these all these constructs kind of hang together. Um, that uh, you know, so um, they kind of form a broader concept of anti-intellectualism. That you just you, denig- you distrust and denigrate expertise and intellectuals uh, across the board. Right. And I have a little quote here from one of your papers. It says, anti-intellectualism, the generalized mistrust and suspicion of intellectuals and experts. And you said it has relevance for political behavior in its own right and not simply as a component of, and I think here's our next point, of conservative ideology. Because it seems that a lot of people attribute it to one party or another, but it seems that that's, right. that, that's not the case. It needs to be looked at as a thing unto itself, it seems. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, so there's, there's this tendency to, to treat correlations, even modest correlations, as deterministic. And so there is, you know, a modest correlation between right-wing ideology and anti-intellectualism, but it is only modest. Um, there's plenty of conservatives that trust experts a lot, uh, and there are liberals that don't. Um, and so, you know, it is, it is a correlation, but it's not deterministic. So it's a, it's a broader concept. One of the sources of anti-intellectualism can be conservative ideology, 
but there are other sources as well. So it's not these these concepts cannot be conflated as much as they are in popular. Right. Discourse. And and again, and you also talk about the correlation between anti-intellectualism and the rejection of ex- expert consensus on specific issues in some of your papers, like, for instance, climate change, water fluoridation is one of them. We could talk about some specifics in a second. But um, but l- let's take climate change as one example for now. Um, it, it would seem that a lot of people approaching this topic would right off the bat think of a certain party or a certain ideology as being the climate skeptics or climate deniers or whatever label you want to throw around. How do you tie this into, again, a broader sense of anti-intellectualism as opposed to our framework being, oh, that's conservatives, for example. They don't yeah. like, believe in climate change or whatever the case may be. Yeah, well, so there are a lot, there are plenty of determinants of skepticism towards climate change. It's not just ideology, but ideology is an important one. So, you know, in, in the United States and in Canada, um, there is a strong uh, association between conservative ideology and, and, skepti- and skepticism of the climate change scientific consensus. Uh, so that is there, um, but there is also an association, strong one, even stronger, between anti-intellectualism and and um, skepticism of climate science as well. But when we think of other issues where there are scientific consensus, uh, it's a bit different. Um, the ideology doesn't matter so much uh, on some of these issues, like the safety of genetically modified organisms. Um, anti-intellectualism, though, still matters. Um, and so that that gets to the point that you know this is a construct that is that is distinct from ideology. You know, it's some it's correlated, and there's some relationship there. But that's but it's my, by no means deterministic. And so you know, it, when we think about more broadly, um, you know, what sorts of factors lead people to accept or reject science, the scientific consensus where it exists, um, we ha- we have to think more about just the case of climate change, where you know there's a strong relationship with ideology. But you know that's not it's not so clear on other issues. Um, so so that that again gets to that point that it's not it's not just about you know conservatives being anti-intellectual. Right, and, and as you're saying, for some people it is sort of this immediate connection between conservatism or or more older stock people to use a Canadian term or or, or conservatism in the United States where, where the anti-intellectual thing is sort of recognized as perhaps part of that ideology but by some people yeah, yeah. but but Absolutely. on the other hand just to be a little funny and of course maybe balance it out for our listeners as well I mean we, we, we there seems to be as you were saying when we get to other camps, uh, sort of, we can correlate anti-intellectualism with that as well. I'm thinking of yeah. some specific examples like, you know, I don't tend to meet many conservatives in my travels that are talking about the healing powers of crystals or, or being very uh, skeptical of GMOs yeah, yeah. and things like that. There's, yeah, there's yeah. pockets, yeah, but exactly. but so yeah. you're right. It doesn't seem to be something we can just say, oh, it's that party that believes in such and such. That's pretty interesting. And and, and w- one other thing, uh, just to build on this point, we, we also have to, to think about, you know, we, we focus so much on U.S. politics, you know, for good reason. It's uh, it's a raging tire fire and you know you can't take your eyes off a train wreck um, but you know there there are other western democracies and um, so we have to think you know can in a comparative context as well um, and you know even in the climate change case um, there's not this clear association between being a conservative being ideologically on the right and skepticism of climate change science um, so the, it, it's, it holds in Canada, it holds in the U.S. It's weaker to mixed in, in other countries. Uh, and so that gets to the point where, you know, there's not, there's not an inevitable association between some of these constructs like ideology and skepticism of science, that elites matter. Polit- and by elites, I mean um, the political class, like uh, members of Congress, members of state legislatures, governors and the like, um, that they're, they're opinion leaders uh, and they bring their supporters along with them on a lot of uh, complex issues. Uh, and so in other countries, you might see different determinants. Um, ideology, especially, is, is and, and partisanship is likely to vary quite a bit. 
Um, but something like anti-intellectualism, I think, you know, and, and I would love to to do more comparative research when I have the resources to do that, I think has has a much, much wider scope of explanatory power uh, across different contexts. Right. And, and just picking up right up on what you said there, um, I'd like to throw another factor into a discussion here, too, which is, which is populism. And I'll, I'll quote you from one of your papers there. You said populism and anti-intellectualism have a complex relationship. They are connected to one another, but the latter should not be seen as a component of the former. And so hold that for a second. And I'll add another thing as well before you answer, which is that, again, as you said, if we're focusing on the United States, especially within the last four years, there is sort of for with a lot of people uh, when it comes to populism, one, two politicians, people attribute that to perhaps an entire party. But you but you're you're quite correct when you say that broadening our scope beyond the United States, again, populism isn't necessarily something tied to one ideology or one party. And then you can get anti-intellectualism paired with that, it seems, from your work as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so we've uh, the project that I've been working on, the Media Ecosystem Observatory uh, and and the past one that I've been working on, we've been we've been asking questions, uh, tapping into populism. Um, and we've been able to you know see these correlations. And there isn't a really strong correlation in Canada. Uh, between populism and, uh, and 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 partisanship or ideology, um, that you know, if anything, there's a kind of ends against the middle dynamic uh, where populism stronger among conservative partisans, among NDP partisans, but weaker among liberal partisans, and that makes sense, right? Because you know, liberals are have been the the national governing party of Canada, um, and so they they attract attract uh, people that are are less populist, uh, you know, as a result of that. Uh, and so the, the, so the relationship between populism and, and ideology and partisanship, you know, again, yeah, might be different in different contexts. Um, we tend, especially because of Trump, we tend to conflate, conflate right-wing ideology with populism, um, but that's simply not the case. And so if, you know, if populism, this, this view of, you know, elites against the masses, if, if a lot of populists think of experts as those elites um, that are trying to, you know, exercise control over their lives, um, you know, that's going to be a driver, an important determinant of, of, of anti-intellectualism, regardless of what your ideology is. And, and talking about, again, when we use that word elite, so in, in your work, it, it's clear that you're talking about the rising anti-elite rhetoric and, and making anti-intellectualism more prominent in how many people and maybe all of us subconsciously actually interpret information. That's actually a very interesting point in terms of who the elite are, I would say, to stop at and think about too, right? Because yeah. often in a lot of populist, narrowly political rhetoric, people talk about, for example, to use an American one, you know, the, the Washington elite or, or the political elite, and sometimes in, in a speech or, or a, a paper or whatever people are putting out to, to Newsweek, they're not talking about experts in science, for instance, or e economics necessarily. They're talking probably about the other party in the United States as, as the Washington elite. Yeah. But this seems to have a spillover effect regardless for to any, for instance, economist, someone on the other side might point to as an expert. So that spillover was very interesting too, that that I was sort of reading between the lines about in your work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there is there is that spillover. And you know, what 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 is an elite, you know, varies from person to person. And um, and, and, you know, this, this goes to the distinction between, you know, left and right populists, that right populists, you know, tend to be concerned mostly with political elites, left populists tend to be more concerned about economic elites and, and, you know, ideal, ideological differences drive what their, their levels of concern are about that. And, and likewise, you know, experts will be considered elites, um, sometimes, but not always. And this might change over time. So like, uh, you know, in the, in the early 20th century, um, experts were seen as an alternative to the political elites um, that people feared, uh, you know, with machine politics and the like. Um, people thought like a neutral, 
um, civil service that was kind of independent of all the, the all the all that muck um, would be widely beneficial for everybody uh, for the people. Uh, and so, you know, at, at certain time points, you know, there is not this clear link uh, in popular discourse between experts and elites. And so that varies uh, as well. Uh, but at but at this time, uh, it seems like there's there's a very clear relationship. And, you know, that might be the process, you know, the, the product of, you know, decades where experts have become more prominent. Um, they've been they're in higher positions of authority, are able to exercise important influences on public policy at the elite level. And so that that might be a product of that, those sorts of changes over time. And actually picking right up on that, I had a question noted to ask you about your thoughts on because I'm not sure if you d- directly address it in, in any of your papers that perhaps I haven't read. But because um, you mentioned it, the the idea that these experts, especially during, for instance, COVID-19, for, for example, are sort of put in front of the population as as, again, the experts, the people we're listening to, you know, a premier or a prime minister or a president or a governor won't just stand. Well, sometimes they will, but they mostly won't just stand at podium and say, hey, listen to me. This is what we're doing. They will, you know, make their political statement and say, and here's the expert that's going to lead us through the crisis. And then this person isn't just someone cited or called upon, it seems, once or twice. They're sort of hitched to that political wagon moving into the future. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on about that and how it, if Actually, I should say before how if it's harmful to the spectrum of discussion that these people are too closely associated often with uh, gov- well, government on the one hand and party on the other. Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. And uh, I, I don't have I don't have an easy answer for this. So on the one hand, you know, we you know, we there are good reasons why politicians do that. Um, it a deflects some blame in case in case things don't go well. Right. Um, and B, you know, the public. You know, for all you know, there is a group out there that is you know anti-intellectual. But for the you know you know looking at the distribution of anti-intellectualism uh, in in Canada and the United States, it's only a small minority. You know, it's not um, there isn't this majority opinion out there that's hostile to experts. Most people are very trust they're very trusting of expert communities across the board, um, and so so that's important to keep in mind. So if so, from a political perspective. Absolutely, you want to attach yourself to experts because they're, you know, if you want to, if you want to persuade people, you're not going to be able to persuade members of the opposite party, but the expert might. Um, so, so there are there are good reasons to do that. On the other hand, um, there's a there's a there's a danger of it of it going too far. Uh, and in 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 the U.S., I think there is um, there is a tendency for the scientific community to be seen. Much too uncomfortably as kind of part of the democratic coalition, um, and that's that's a very big problem. So things like there's been some research done about like the effects of the March for Science and and other things on on public attitudes, and it and it seems like it does turn away Republicans from uh, groups of experts, and so that's that's not good. And I, I don't have a you know good solution to this there there are many many experts out there that you know stay away from partisan politics and right. they they stay you know in their appropriate lane they give advice on on their their field of expertise but they try to stay out of of those sorts of questions but there are others that you know it's free you know use exercise of their free speech rights um give their opinions they're they tend to lean left politically and then as a result some bad faith actors can label you know the expert community more broadly as being you know partisan or ideological. And I honestly don't have a good solution to that. Um, it is it is a danger. 
Um, but I, I, I don't know what the right answer is. It's sort of like a two-way street, right? So from a pol- the politician's perspective, they're leaning upon an expert or the expert community as they claim this is a play for credibility for the politician, whether it's crisis or in a certain issue, good for them. But on the flip side, the yeah. expert, of course, as you were saying, runs the risk of being associated with uh, a, a certain party or, for instance, be- becoming a political figure themselves, yeah. like Dr. Fauci yeah. in the States. Regardless yeah. of his intentions, we can't you know, call for on the operation of his mind ourselves. But all that to say, whatever he intended, he is now looked at by many in certain camps as effectively just another political figure. You know, yeah. people people's doubt of his expertise stems from this whole idea. Well, of course, he, I've seen the comments on Twitter online. Of yeah. course, he'll come out and say that. That's what the party wants him to say, things like that. So there's a yeah, risk yeah. of the experts becoming known as effectively just another political figure primarily. Well, the, the, weir- the weird thing about that specific case is that he's he's part of the White House task force, right? right? So he's not, he's, you know, he's not being trotted out there by Democrats. He, he is kind of in effect um, because Democratic elites happen to share his perspective on things, but he's still, he's still, you know, part of the administration response. Um, And, and even, and even then he's, you know, seen as kind of a, you know, deep part of the deep state or or some such nonsense. Some sort of insurgency trying to throw off the Trump train or whatever people say, right? Yeah. Yeah, and 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 that and that gets to the point of you know so it doesn't really matter who appoints you. Um, so this is this is tricky. Like there's nothing there's nothing he Anthony Fauci can do about what Democratic elites or activists say. He can't he can't exercise any control of that. All he can do is give you know his best good faith advice, um, and and you know the rest of it's kind of out of his control. And so then that's why I don't have a good solution because we need, in cases like this, um, we do need experts, uh, you know, at the front lines to, to, uh, to give us advice about, you know, uh, about, you know, how best to respond to a pandemic from a, from a health perspective and the like. Um, but to avoid that politicization, you know, it's a shame, but, you know, to some degree it just re- it re- requires political elites that aren't willing to, to kind of, tear everything down um right like there's not there was nothing stumping stopping trump from taking the coronavirus seriously and the outbreak seriously um there was there was nothing stopping him from you know wearing masks once it was recommended and you know advocating social distancing in the white house there there was nothing stopping him from doing any of that right and in fact from from a from a simply a survival instinct perspective like it's not great that two hundred thousand Americans have died on your watch, so you would you would think you would want to to slow the pandemic down as much as possible to help your reelection chances. So even from a political survival perspective, nothing that they've done makes sense. Um, so you know, but nonetheless, they decided that it would be them against the experts. Right. And you know, to point the blame at the experts for that is kind of silly. Uh, at the end of the day. Uh, we should hold our leaders accountable for what they do. Right. And that probably points more to what you're saying before, which is this idea that, you know, perhaps the the, the incentives of tribalization and base of, of knowledge at that point is basically what's the primary incentive and primary driving force for a lot of what you just said, rather than whether or not we mistrust the experts or not. It sort of is in tow with yeah. that. Um, yeah. I'd like to move on to a different point here, which will probably actually uh, be a good chunk of one here and may maybe take us right into the break, but I'm going to see if we can fit it in here regardless. So... Shifting gears a bit here, let's talk about the news media 
and I'll again read a quote from some of your work here. You said the fault for sharply diverging opinions between experts and the public may not rest, uh, sorry, entirely rest with citizens. However, scholars must also be attentive to the political information environment, the information space used by citizens to learn about political issues of which the news media, of course, is a critical part. So it's important that we recognize that this isn't just, you know, you here sitting here saying, oh, that pesky population is completely silly. And anytime we see anti-intellectualism, it's for no good reason, right? Your, your work also covers, uh, for instance, the news media as one important factor uh, in, in potentially, regardless of intentions, fueling some of the anti-intellectualism or mistrust of experts. And you go also go on to say, news coverage of expert consensus on general matters of policy is likely limited as a result of journalists' emphasis in news production on novelty and drama and the expense of thematic context. So there's a lot to unpack there. So let's let's talk about the news production angle too. I guess it's important to first recognize when we think about sources of information that these people are in the business of producing news and headlines ultimately. Yes. Um, and that's not even a value judgment statement for me. That's just what they do. So right off the bat as institutional analysis, that's important to recognize, right? Absolutely. And then, and then we move on from there and you say news content is biased toward balance and conflict, which may weaken the persuasiveness of expert consensus. So here was something very interesting I found in your paper, this idea of false balance. Can you get into that? Because of course, if you talk to any journalist or people working at, at the more respected, uh, what are the more looked at as the more respected uh, news outlets, uh, of course, they think they're balanced. But yeah. what's the what, what's false balance? You're saying unbeknownst to them, they're actually creating a false balance. There's a, there's a lot, lots of stuff going on there. Um, so first, just to, to separate out partisan media from kind of mainstream normal media, they have mm -hmm. different, different, different bases of consumers, different incentives, different norms. Um, so different norms operate for partisan media. Does this, this doesn't really apply to them so much. Um, so when we think about, you know, what, what sells is like the first thing to think about when trying to understand what winds up being covered uh, in the news media. And what, what, what gets sold, like what, what generates the clicks, what pays the bills are, you know, conflict-laden news stories, cut and thrust, uh, one side versus the other. Uh, and, you know, part of it is this norm of balance where journalists want to be fair. Uh, they, tend, they tend to kind of zero in on two sides, but even though it's reality is much more messy than that, there are multiple sides. Nonetheless, they try to kind of zoom in on two sides. They try to, you know, to some degree, paint these sides as equitably. So give them both, um, you know, equal space or an opportunity to air their position. Um, and the the kind of incentives for that are 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 multiple. One is that you know if you know if you start just ignoring, say, conservative elites, Republican elites, um, that's a problem. You're going to lose access to your sources. Uh, it, it, there's there's lots of 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 big time consequences for that. Uh, so you want to be fair to the side that you need access to. Um, so there's there's some of that. Some of it's just a fairness norm that a lot of journalists hold that, you know, it's not their job to, to pick a side. They need to, you know, present both of them and be fair in their coverage. And some of it is just, it just makes a better story when it's one side versus the other. Um, they, you know, they, they fire shots at one another. It's, it's more conflictual. Um, and so all of that's going into, you know, a tendency for journalists to uh, have, you know, both sides um, represented. This, a second point is that um, it really doesn't sell 
uh, articles to to put in a lot of policy detail or virtually any policy detail. So you, you get kind of really superficial news about specific events, um, like a bill's passed uh, and the like. And, and you get a story structured around explaining that event at the time, but not giving the context um, of the event uh, over time. And so, so that means that, you know, so say, say you have an article about um, genetically modified organisms. Um, say they're, they're covering a ballot initiative on whether there should be labeling. They're going to cover, you know, the pros and cons, you know, both sides are going to talk about the labeling, but are they going to really tell you that much about the kind of scientific background about what's been uncovered about the safety of genetically modified organisms? Right. Maybe an activist against the labeling will mention it, but they're not going to go out of their way to provide that context. So, so a lot of times on a lot, like, in, you know, we, we know that the average member of the general public is not informed about political issues. And some of this is because a lot of these, these details, these, these important policy details and, you know, and knowledge of scientific consensus where it exists just doesn't make it in its way to n- make it into news stories where mm-hmm. they, where they learn about these issues. They don't go out of their way to research net- genetically modified organisms. They might read a story that is some way associated with it. And so they're dependent on journalists providing, to some degree, providing that information uh, in, in news coverage. And so that piece kind of shows us that that doesn't often happen. Um, it happens in climate change uh, and vaccines more than it does on a whole host of other issues. But it, 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 the, tra- the tail off is pretty dramatic that you know, informing people of scientific or economic consensus is very, is pretty rare. Uh, and the second thing is that, you know, there, there is some balancing in stories. They tend to balance in a way that favors the position of experts, but only modestly. The only exception is climate change and vaccines. So in climate change and vaccines, they kind of dramatically emphasize the position of the expert community on all the on other issues like nuclear, the safety of nuclear power, genetically modified organisms, free trade. Um, it's not nearly the case. Um, so fa- false balance has been, you know, put out there as this. So, you know, false balance, meaning that, you know, you give a contrarian expert equal weight to somebody from the mainstream scientific community. It doesn't happen as much in climate change and vaccine coverage as we might think, but it does exist in in lots of other news coverage. And so it is a problem there. Right. And and interesting to note, I guess, as I'm listening to that, and as I was reading your stuff too, is that um, not only did you say that the context for what's being discussed is often absent, so that's one problem in and of itself. If someone's coming fresh to a certain news story, um, just having, forgetting even for a second about what perhaps the expert on the issue is saying versus like, let's call them the contrarian for a second, just by having, as you were saying, that framework set up by a story is in and of itself something people will probably absorb and and and, yes. and internalize as, oh, there is a conflict on this issue. Even if they don't listen to the article, when a journalist Absolutely. or a news media frames something as so we have person x and person y on either side of this contentious debate before even any content is spewed you have the uh, implication that this is indeed a contentious issue and that's enough sometimes for people to take away absolutely so so, sometimes so journalists a lot of journalists are aware of that especially those on like the science beat um so this is this is something that they're aware of and and in, in some stories they do you know even if they do present both sides they try to kind of send signals as to what side's more credible. Um, so this, this does happen, but it, it, you know, it happens far more often in climate change and vaccine coverage than it does on other issues. So, 
So being careful about how you, you know, balance a story has been internalized to some degree by reporters that that cover climate change and cover vaccines, but it hasn't it hasn't percolated through uh, the entire uh, the entire system. And to some degree, that reflects the fact that on some of these other issues, it is the political reporters that are doing the reporting, mm, and they're right. they're especially more prone to want lots of conflict uh, to protect their sources. They, all the incentives that I just mentioned are like doubly important for them. Um, so so part of it's that. Um, but part of it is also that we're not we're not very good. Um, d- different expert communities aren't very good at kind of providing information about consensus. So you know, climate change is is, is a uh, uh, and vaccines are are anomalous. Um, there is lots of work showing this, um, but on other, especially you know, areas of economic consensus, there's not not a lot of meta analyses, not not a lot of efforts to kind of accumulate what is known and provide a kind of a clear signal one way or the other. One one kind of way around this, um, there's this uh, poll poll of economists that uh, that um, uh, University of Chicago Booth School I think uh, does. Uh, so I, I I leaned on that a bit. So they they do a panel. They have a panel of of economists, uh, hundreds of economists, and they they poll them on certain questions. And so we get a good sense of you know what the consensus is on some very specific questions that are asked in that poll. And that's 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 a great that's a great innovation. Um, and we need to do more of that uh, on a lot of other domains, um, because at the, at the end of the day, we can't fault journalists that much if we're not very good at, at telling and, and describing, you know, where where there is agreement and where there isn't agreement. And perhaps some journalists, if, if they're an expert in being a journalist uh, and not an expert in what they're what they're reporting on or a specific subject, that's either you know might be on their beat, but it's not necessarily that that niche that niche area that they understand the most. When when they are framing up that issue, like here's one side, here's the other side. I guess it's also important to pay attention to who they've been sourced or who they are sourcing. I should say as that expert. Right? On the one hand, you might have a scientific expert or someone who works at a university, and on the other hand, you have a uh, a liberal party strategist. And so that it's always interesting, I think, to take note again before any content's actually spoken. Yeah. who's representing what's yeah no, ab- side. absolutely that that's a whole other area of complication like so what so what you know what sources are you are you counting as an expert and, and what aren't uh, and what you know how are their incentives different so you, you cite an expert at a think tank that kind of has a has an agenda uh, versus one one that doesn't or you know an, an expert at the university i don't really know how well the public makes distinctions between the two you know when they're when they're deciding who to listen to um i think more work needs to be done on that um, but also like, you know, it's about incentives too. like who, who are the experts that want to talk to the media? So like, I, I just think of, I, yeah, I think of my, you know, my experience, uh, you know, do, you know, uh, responding to media requests, you know, and, and th- you know, this situation here on a podcast, you know, we get to talk in depth about things this is not how those requests go by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, they, they want, they want a, a juicy tidbit, uh, for a story, you know, you know this ex this event. You know how much is it going to impact the race? And to my to my response is almost entirely that it's not going to matter. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. And and surprisingly, that quote doesn't make it into uh, in, into into a into an article, right? Because that's that's not really a. Um, but you know, some other expert is you know more willing to play the game. Uh, but that's not getting the best information out. And so you know, there's there's all these complications about 
you know, how, you know, how experts are, are treated in the news. And there's a lot more work to be done. Um, we, we need to focus on a lot. More. Right. And one can think of many examples, just theoretically, there had two, right? Like if there's a, you know, a, a six part uh, story, a journalist is working on or a group of journalists is working on. And in two of the six, they uh, have an expert cited or somebody on, on another side of the opinion that it has is primarily talking from a political or partisan purpose. You know, they're, they're a conservative or liberal strategist or whatever kinds of experts they lean upon. And then the other uh, article or part of that series, they actually are going to someone who is either at a think tank or just an independent researcher like even across the same subject you could have major variances in what the expert is as you said having as their primary intention and and, and one other point kind of to build off this that i think and I, I really wanted to highlight it here is that you know experts can't tell us everything um and we have to be careful uh you know when they try to um so you know thinking thinking about these issues of, of scientific consensus um some of these consensuses are, are pretty narrow so like Global warming is happening. It's man-made. It's a serious issue. Um, you know, but, but how to solve it is a different question. Um, it requires a policy response. Um, policy responses always, you know, generate winners and losers. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the kind of the calculation of how, how to, how to fix the problem, how to best balance, um, uh, balance those issues is our political questions that involve discussions of values and norms. Um, that, you know, an expert can't just say, you know, this is, and, and to their credit, the vast majority of them won't say this. Um, you know, they, they don't have the final say on some of these questions. You know, it's about norms and it's about values. And questions of economics are, are especially this. You know, you have, you have something like free trade and it, you know, it, it helps everybody in the aggregate, but there are winners and losers. Uh, depending on, on what kind of values um, you have, you might make that trade-off differently. Uh, it might it might entail a different policy response. You know, those are those are questions of politics, and and experts can weigh in on them absolutely. Um, but it has to be treated a bit differently. What they say on on those sorts of questions than on on the narrow facts, you know, that they've established the research. So th- these are very complicated questions, and and I don't know, I don't have solutions. Um, I just like to bring them up. And actually, I think that's an excellent place to take our break. So we will do so now. Everyone, you're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Eric Merkley today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Andy Crooks, Bryce Tingle, and Christopher McDonald. Remember to like us on Facebook, Follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Eric Merkley today. Eric, uh, before the break, we were talking about a lot. Uh, The last point we were talking about was the news media. And and one of the final points you're making about that is how there often is a lot lot of gray area on some of these issues in terms of where we sort of give away from that expert consensus into, okay, now what do we do about this in the public policy arena, et cetera, et cetera. And it occurred to me as, as I was reading some of your work on this and as well as you were just talking about what you were talking about before the break there that... And perhaps this is where we parked partisan media for a second. So perhaps where this has come back in comes back in. But it seems that one of the biggest problems 
uh, for some news media, at least, or the way some journalists present a certain issue, is that both the expert consensus and potentially the policy options that fall from that are sort of like a bundle. That is to say, if you accept one on one end, you have to basically accept the line throughout. And of course, partisan media is the worst with this. But that must also be another source of confusion for many people that do consider themselves relatively political, but also they tell themselves they're interested in the expert opinion. Where that line blurs in, in reality must also blur quite quite a lot in people's minds as well in terms of what sort of bundle of reality they're accepting for themselves from consensus and fact through to implementation of policy. It's very, yeah, absolutely. It's very complicated. And, uh, you know, you can you can accept the scientific consensus on climate change uh, or genetically modified organisms or free trade right. uh, and have you know, different views of public policy. So, you know, maybe you do think free trade is, is welfare reducing in the aggregate that mo- most people benefit. Um, but you also believe that, well, there should be compensation in policy for the losers of free trade. Uh, and that's and that's perfectly consistent with the, with the economic consensus on free trade. If not, it is the like the cons- consensus among most economists that there should be compensation for the losers. Um, so, but yeah, how how to how to, especially when when things get simplified in political discourse, um, there's a, there's a tendency to be you know uh, for activists say experts say you know climate change is 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 serious and human co- and human cause. Right. Um, therefore, you must accept this particular policy package, um, like. It, 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 it probably implies that you should accept a policy response of some sort, um, but the, the nature of that policy response is, is, is very much an, an open question. There's, there's lots of possible solutions to climate change. You know, economists would probably elevate carbon taxes uh, as the most uh, efficient means of doing that. But again, uh, whether you prize efficiency, uh, it, you know, is to some degree a value judgment. Uh, so, you know, whether, whether you want to accept that policy response is, you know, values matter there too. Um, and, and this all gets kind of, kind of, kind of pigeonholed into one package, as he said, uh, in political discourse, and that's harmful. But it's, it's tough. I, I don't have a solution to this problem because most people don't pay that close attention to politics. Uh, they hear, they hear snippets on the news. Um, not, and, and, and the people that are really paying attention are the ones that are super engaged and very constrained in their beliefs where they believe one thing, they definitely, they're very likely to believe a second thing. And, uh, and so th- those folks are the most likely to simplify things, um, you know, in, 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 a tr- in, in a way like that. So I don't know the solution. Yeah. And I'm actually glad you touched on, on trade before, because I think that segues nicely into another quote I have here from you, as well as another point about the way the news presents these things. Um, so you say, for example, news coverage of trade agreements may focus on the cut and thrust of negotiations and carry claims and counterclaims of activists on either side without setting the context for readers about whether trade protectionism is generally welfare enhancing or reducing according to prevailing expert knowledge. Again, there might be a section of people that tune in uh, for that one hour on C-SPAN with an interview with an expert, but most of the uh, other people are exposed to what what ultimately is a sort of a sport uh, for people to observe when it comes to these things. And if you and if you start carrying a lot of context in in a lot of those stories, you might lose lose readers, right? And not everybody's gonna gonna read a long form piece of by you know by a journalist that really goes into depth on some of these issues. Um, and you know, especially like you know, it's one you know, it's one thing to say you know, you know, experts agree it's it's welfare enhancing uh, on average, um, but you know, there's a lot of complicated questions just under the surface of that. Um, like you know, well, you know, what was the role of the China shock? You know, when when uh, we liberalized trade with China, who lost in that? Um, 
you know, what are, are there certain forms of liberalization that are better than others? There's, there's lot, lots of other questions kind of under the surface. Oh, there's a tendency in, in, in articles about free trade because they're about trade deals to lump in intellectual property protection right. and all sorts of other, other stuff where uh, it's a lot, it's a lot more dicey. Right. Are, are we still talking about what we at a service level called free trade at that point? Exactly. So that's a whole exactly. Other discussion. Exactly. Political elites love to, you know, to bring in all sorts of stuff under the umbrella of a trade agreement. Uh, and then say, you know, you know, economists think this is great. Um, but you know, there's, there's lots of details in these things. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. you know, and, and, uh, you know, you know, setting aside, you know, even if journalists were able to, you know, provide better context to some of these things that, that it's tough. And, um, you know, I, I hate to be a media critic and then, and then have no solutions for them. But uh, all I can say is that the balance is probably tilted too far towards conflict and, and superficial coverage and that there needs to be some more serious effort to engage in these, in these issues. And, and to some degree, you know, again, that's, that's on economists and other experts to more accurately convey what the state of knowledge is in a given field. And as you're saying before, that, that sort of giveaway from the expert consensus to actual policy is a different thing. And a politician can say on the one side of their mouth, of course, as we cited this, these papers and these experts, economists love free trade. This is a great yeah. policy. So here's a 4,000 page trade agreement with one country. <laughs> yeah. So that's a yeah, whole, or, whole different yeah, thing. Or, or something even more subtle. Like here, here's, here's another you know, example of this. So when I was coding a lot of these free trade articles for that, uh, for that article, um, you know, there was, you know, a fair balance of opinion that people, people, that most people thought these trade agreements were good. So NAFTA was one of the ones that, that came up, mm-hmm. uh, for instance. Um, and so, you know, the balance of articles was, you know, pretty, you know, leaned in the favor of position of, of experts, but, but what exactly do experts support about something like NAFTA? Well, a lot of the kind of political class, like Clinton's line on on NAFTA, wasn't about you know whether enhances welfare in the aggregate, like no, no, no politician no. talks like that, mm-hmm. right? Um, it was about oh, it helps exporters, right? Right, and so that's that's, that's mercantilist. He had this speech where he stood in the hangar of Boeing, I think, at one point, and said, "This is the exactly. ideal American corporation. Exactly. This corporation with protectionism and subsidies." There you go. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So you, you know, you can you can think NAFTA is good for the wrong reasons, <laughs> yeah. at least as far as as far as economists are concerned. Um, and so, and and that's a subtlety that very rarely gets gets picked up because it's about you know it's about protecting. Uh, trade exposed industries versus helping exporters. And that's that's kind of the only frame the media has really able been able to cover these sorts of issues in. Uh, more recently, there's more concern about environmental and labor protections. And there, there's some other stuff that, that's more common nowadays. Um, but that, that was the, that was the dominant frame during NAFTA. And uh, so like again, that's 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 a, you know to some degree the fault fault of economists like not making it you know, maybe they do make it clear in their interviews and it never makes its way into coverage. I don't know. Um, but, you know, it's about it's about helping free trades about, you know, benefiting consumers. It makes everybody better off in the in the aggregate. It leads to higher wages in the aggregate. It leads to, you know, these these sorts of things. But it's it's not about helping certain companies like that's right. That's not what it's about. Um, so. That, you know, those sorts of subtleties never get picked up. In the same vein, as as we were sort of saying, politicians sort of take what what they think at least to be the cons- um, expert consensus and sort of run with it. And so let's pivot over to a broader discussion on partisanship. Again, in, in the discussion or a broader context here about partisanship and how it affects whether or not the general population ends up feeling that they trust the experts or not. Um, so 
you know, in your work, it's clear that it seems to you that partisan affiliations affect the opinions of many. And of course, this contributes, as you point out, to the idea of like what we can call the top down model of attitude formation. Before I ask you a couple of follow up questions, why don't you just elaborate on what that sort of top down model of attitude formation is? Yeah, absolutely. So what it means basically is so imagine uh, an issue just recently arrives into, into public consciousness. So people don't really know what it's about. They don't know any of the particulars. They don't, and, and they don't know how it maps either directly or indirectly through possible policy response onto their ideological and partisan beliefs. Um, they don't really know enough. They're not sophisticated enough. They don't pay attention to politics enough to kind of intuitively know where it falls in, in, in either direction. Uh, and so opinion leaders matter. Uh, and opinion leaders, you know, can be can be law. It could be Sean Hannity. Doesn't necessarily need to be politicians. Right. Uh, the perception is they're an opinion leader. End of story. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you know, the the group of opinion leaders that we tend to focus our most attention to because they get picked up the most in the news media. And so the, the you know media mediates the communication, and the media really likes to focus on politicians. And so they they are you know have central importance. Um, uh, is pa- party leaders matter? So presidents. Um, members of Congress, right. uh, state legislators, governors, uh, and so if you're if you're a Republican and you know say it's the you know mid '90s and you don't really know what's going on with climate change, uh, haven't there hasn't been that much media attention to it uh, to this point. Um, you don't really know what it's about, but you know you sort of trust experts. So you're like, yeah, okay, I'm I'm concerned. Um, but then uh, you hear a lot of ruckus about Kyoto and Republicans are saying that yeah, this is not a thing. There's not enough evidence. Um, and it's going to kill jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't like that because you like jobs and <laughs> yeah. you're, you're, you're a Republican. And so you follow, you follow their lead, um, because you, you have what we call an affective. So effective means like positive or negative charge that you associate with certain political leaders or objects. Um, and it kind of you intuitively kind of follow their lead, uh, and you know this. There's there's a rational uh, part of this where you know you don't you don't really care much about politics, and so it's like a shortcut for you to to just follow their lead. But some of it is your you know you might be invested in politics, and you know having the same positions as your leaders kind of bolsters your own social identity. Um, so that's kind of a social identity uh, perspective on on partisanship. And so then you adopt the opinions of, of the par- of party leaders, and and to some degree, you know, some of this is following your own leaders, but some of it you, you might you might just not like the other guys, like on the other side. So you see President Clinton or Al Gore talking a lot about climate change, and you're like, well, I don't like them, so climate change isn't a thing. Um, and so then you kind of get repelled by by their signals. And so there's this tendency for, you know, on these novel issues for people to follow the lead of, of their leaders. Um, and then it's, it's, it's pretty hard once, once elites are polarized, it's pretty hard to, to, to walk everybody back uh, in that sort of context. And so yeah. that, that's the kind of opinion leader model. And I guess like, uh, depending on what issue we're talking about or what partisan group we're talking about, whether or not you throw a stronger or weaker sense of anti-intellectualism into that blender or not, that sort of, it, again, depends on what group we're talking about or even what issue we're talking about. Yeah. And, and you know, and some, some of these, some issues don't rise in salience like this. So, you know, we've never had, you know, you had Kyoto that spiked interest in, in climate change and then inconvenient truth and the energy bill in 2010, dramatic increase in coverage. So it became like a big political issue. Uh, and then, and then polarization emerged and became entrenched through different processes that I could talk about later. Um, 
But on some of these other issues, they never really reach that level of consciousness because they're never really picked up that much in the news media. And so you don't, and, 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 and there might not even be signals or, or the signals are mixed from, from opinion leaders. Um, so you, you can't really clearly place yourself. And then in that case, um, you kind of, you, you adopt, you know, your feelings about experts might matter even more in, in, in that case, um, which might be, in, you know, independent of ideological concerns. And picking up on the point there about how people, of course, may be very influenced or steered a certain direction by people in their in-group and, and, and their, their, their own fellow partisans, if you will. Um, another interesting point you make in some of your work is that, of course, um, people might not realize right off the top that a lot of these attitudes of partisans also af- affect outgroups as well, right? So a lot of people who uh, who are either loyal to a certain political party or just very ideological in a certain way, everyone loves to sit around and point and say, well, those guys are clearly partisan over there. Look how they're just listening yes, to yeah, X, yeah, Y, yeah. and Z. They probably yeah. don't realize another factor at play, according to your work, is, well, the reason they feel so apart from them is probably because they're actually, in fact, an outgroup from that in-group that they are pointing to. Yeah, and, you know, we, so, the, the, you know, this goes to, you know, the, Processes that will be called motivated reasoning, uh, where you 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 because of your social identity, um, you're motivated to protect it, um, to to protect it, uh, to reinforce your prior beliefs, and so you see you know perhaps identical pieces of information and interpret them different ways uh, in order to bolster those identities, and so and everybody loves to kind of counter the charge on the other side while they're I I see things in a neutral kind of even-handed way. It's the other team that is biased and, and the like. Uh, and in reality, it's just a fundamental part of human cognition um, that we, um, we, we kind of, we are, we are social creatures. We are group-based creatures. Mm-hmm. We, we, care, we care about people of our own group and are biased against people of what we see as outgroups. And, and because of, you know, the stakes of political conflict have, have increased over time for a variety of different reasons, um, you know, the, the ideological distance between parties has grown over time. The competitiveness of elections has grown over time in the United States, at least. Um, the stakes have gotten higher. And so, so this, this whole process of like really digging in uh, matters even more. And, and to, to tie it back to the point about experts, if there is an issue um, where experts happen to be on one side of it because there is a consensus, that's a big problem um, because one, one side is very motivated to reject information um, because of those prior beliefs and their and their social identities, uh, and the other side is motivated to accept it, um, and then it's very hard to 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 kind of bring people alongside the consensus when everybody's kind of dug in. I'd like to shift gears a little about prob- a little bit probably to another thing that's actually uh, in the same vein again of, of what you're just talking about. But uh, and now that I'm looking, our time is winding down here a little bit, and that's okay. But I'm wondering, of course, we could probably spend a whole four hours on this. I'd like to talk about social versus news media. Um, and and which fuels more per- misperception and misinformation. So, you know, right off the bat, some of your work talks about something that I think a lot of people have a gut feeling about to begin with, but it's nice to actually see it confirmed in actual work, which is that, uh, of course, you found in your work that media like Twitter is more responsible for, for uh, misinformation. So a social media is more responsible for misinformation than news media. And and this idea of, of infodemic, which is we have this wild spread of misinformation. So, so, so if you don't mind taking us through your thoughts on that and, and why it's, number one, important to distinguish what's going on in news media and social media. And of course, then we could dive deeper into social media. So um, the, the key difference between social media and news media is there's there's more efforts at quality control uh, in news media than in, than in social media. So they, they have different incentives. Uh, they have well an institutional framework that allows them to, to, to take the time to make sure they, you know, at least, you know, get the story right as best as they can. Uh, but in social media, 
thoughts from everybody just just come out. It's a cesspool. Right. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you're going to get a lot more misinformation circulated uh, online about that. Now, we have, we have to keep, you know, a, f- a few things, a few caveats in mind here. Um, most Canadians and Americans are not intense social media users. Um, so there's a, cause there's a baseline here. Most people get their news, believe it or not, from the television, from broadcast TV. Um, most Americans are not dialed into Fox News or MSNBC. Um, so this is a minority. Um, you know, the, the minority matters. They have a very loud voice, right? Because um, they're they're very kind of politically engaged, intense, and and journalists. There's a lot of good research recently that shows that journalists are very attentive to what's being said. Um, so their their kind of perceptions of public opinion and all sorts of things are shaped by what they see on Twitter. Right. Um, they're heavy Twitter users, even though it's not representative of the public. Um, so we have to keep that in mind. But the reality is, you know, social media, there's a lot less information control. Um, you know, there's efforts, um, Facebook and you, uh, and Twitter to, to curb this, you know, whether they're successful or not remains to be seen. But there's all these other applications and, you know, misinformation circulating on those, those outlets too. Uh, and so what we've seen, at least with COVID-19, is that um, yeah, there is a, a strong correlation between, you know, how much social media people use and, and how many misperceptions or conspiracy theories they endorse about COVID-19. They're just, and this is controlling for factors like ideology and, 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 and all these other things that you would think would be um, associated with it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a problem. And, uh, you know, again, uh, I'm, I'm a person that raises problems and has very few solutions. Um, <laughs> uh, there's, uh, you know, lots of, you know, concerns about free speech that I think are, are warranted and, uh, you know, and, and how, and, you know, the, big thing that we really haven't grappled where we focus so much on you know russian disinformation uh and kind of organic disinformation you know that's one thing and you know maybe we might be able to do deal with that you know down the line but how do you deal with misinformation from political elites like trump is a voice box of all sorts of craziness on COVID 19 and you know how can you tell journalists you cannot cover the president of the united states you can't you can't have him as a have a megaphone to spread all this stuff right um, he, d- he did it in the debate he does it all the time um how do you how do you deal with that and i i like that's a tough one um because you know political elites they are elected leaders they have uh you know democratic legitimacy although you know because of you know weird quirks of the american system we can debate how much that's the case um but you know, how do you how do you reconcile that? And uh, I don't have an answer to it. But it is a serious problem. It has been a big problem um, through this pandemic. Um, but you know, to keep things in in into context, a minority, which is only a minority of people that are intense social media users, uh, it's only a minority of people in the U.S. that focus on partisan media. And partisan media in Canada is virtually non-existent. Um, so you know, we have to keep keep these things in mind. Most people. Um, Pay attention to the sources they should. Um, mainstream news—they're um, getting the right information, um, at least you know within the limits that I talked about earlier. Right. Um, so um, we have to keep that in mind. So, you know, if we if we become a you know if social media usage over time becomes more and more widespread because you know we right now it's a lot of older folks don't use it. Um, you know, if it becomes if it percolates through the population over time. You know, this this isn't go. It's an issue that you know is, isn't going away. Uh, so we have to, we have to find a solution. Right, and and again, 
that some of the tenets of social media are the same things you're saying in, in news media. The things that get the uh, the views in news media are often when the, a, a sense of false balance is provided or conflict. Um, you know, I saw somebody excitedly one time, uh, you know, reference in, in news media some important issue that was going on at the United Nations General Assembly. Of course, no one's going to read the paperwork, but this guy was saying this is like the Super Bowl of politics. I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, thanks. So that's the kind of that's the kind of attitude people have approached those things in the news media. But but on social media, again, what gets the clicks, of course, and what gets people interested, and especially on your phone, that's a whole different paradigm when you're just kind of absorbing information is conflict and 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 what it at least is presented to be. Um, sometimes yeah. the quote unquote, the actual truth. I think we it's important for us also to keep in mind that just algorithmically speaking, and the way these platforms are designed is that unless you make serious efforts to mitigate these effects by default, they're all set to construct a certain reality that they think you want to see. And so when people say, I don't listen to X, Y, and Z source, I, and I got all the right people in my feed or all the new sources I'm following. That's part of a construction that the platforms are actually artificially doing um so one one limitation also one other caveat to keep in mind is that you know a lot of people like to click on stories that kind of reaffirm their identities uh, or they're highly novel doesn't necessarily mean they believe them um so so we have, we have to keep in you know what what the difference between engagement and sharing and an actual sincere belief adoption um there's a tendency sometimes it's uh, well like covid's kind of thrown a bucket of cold water on this theory uh, but there is a theory out there of kind of expressive responding to survey questions that you know people adopt. People will tell a survey, like they'll 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 fill out a survey to support their team. But it doesn't. But if you if you like pay them to like have the correct belief, right. they'll be like, eh, okay, no. <laughs> um, so so there so there might be some of that going on, um, and and also that um, you know it, it you know we we keep got to keep in mind that uh, people don't this is not this is again a minority like we i can't begin to say how vanishingly rare um partisan media usage or, or echo chambers are in canada for instance and even in the u.s it's 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 very very highly overblown um, people that are, are watching fox news are also paying attention to other outlets uh, and so you know even if they're encountering misinformation they are also encountering the correct information um and you know, so, you know, it's an important caveat to keep in mind. You know, there's a lot of doom and gloom in, in this area of research, um, but uh, but these these sorts of caveats are important. It's it's something to, to monitor and absolutely is something we, we should correct on social media. Um, but, you know, it's it's too soon to say that it's going to be the death of democracy or, or, or right. other things. That right. There's a lot, a lot of hyperbole. Right. Yeah. But putting aside that exactly the death of democracy or the collapse of our civilization, at the very least, I think we can say that it is true that one interesting thing we'll see as the pandemic goes along is that if someone spent a handful of hours, let's say on their phone or on their computer, uh, perusing social media or on their version of Twitter, I always like to say, or their version of Facebook, because that's what's constructed for you. Perhaps we hope that they had some sort of balance elsewhere. Like, you know, they went out to the store more often, went out with friends, went out to work and diversified their life. It's going to be yeah. interesting to see perhaps if people's views or opinions or even attitudes towards a lot of this stuff shifts as they have more of an incentive than ever to sit at home and stay plugged in to what, as you said, is ultimately representing a minority of the situation yeah. or beliefs. So that's a, that's a good point. So they, so one, one thing, yeah. So you know, we, one thing we kind of de-emphasize in, in a lot of this research is that, you know, people's social networks matter also offline, right? Uh, They're face-to-face discussions with other people about politics and people have much less homogenous 
uh, networks offline than they do online. Uh, and so, so even among people that are social media users, you know, they are, there are mechanisms in our social world to counteract these things. Um, now, you know, if, if the balance tilts where we sort, where our offline contacts erode and where everything's kind of moved more and more online, it's, you know, it's, it's still going to be a concern in the future. Um, but at least at the moment, people talk more about politics with people face to face than they do through social media. And that's true even of people that use social media. So, um, we have to we have to keep all that in mind as well. Well, that's I think that's a for me my value judgment. That's a stat and a point that gives me hope. So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, one final question before we go to our formal wrap up here. Um, I just wanted you to have an opportunity to clarify a certain point because you and I batted back and forth a lot of ideas here over the course of our conversation, and we talked about you know a lot of the quote unquote right information coming through the mainstream sources versus social media and things like that. I'm, I'm sure at the end of the day, ultimately, what you would encourage anyone listening to this or anyone listening to you on this topic to do is obviously, although there may be some sources that are better than other others is to I, I suppose always apply a skeptical eye to what they're seeing in the sense of a healthy skepticism to not just accept what they're hearing and probably think a little bit more critically about what what they're what they're absorbing so this so this is a tricky needle to thread and and why i say that is because there's been some research that shows if you if you tell people if you give, give people a warning and say be skeptical of what you see people like will also distrust correct information Mm-hmm, like at the mm-hmm. same level as they distrust incorrect information, and so it's not it's not sure if it we we're not sure if it nets out in a, in a, in a positive way. Um, but what I would say is that you know for for any given news report, um, you know it, you know if if it's from a credible source, that's great. If multiple credible sources also report the same thing, that's even better. Uh, and so you know if so- something pops up on your feed, just wait for it to be picked up by credible sources and multiple credible sources. Um, and uh, and 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 also just kind of ignore opinion columns. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> and don't watch cable news. Right there, you go. There's just some good tips. And as and as you said, I yeah, I completely agree. Like wait for wait for sources to be picked up as a as a huge thing as, as well as um as well as a look at all of Eric's work as well. <laughs> Make sure you understand the frames that these are often set up and and things like that. And I agree, it is definitely uh, you know a, a tricky uh, needle to thread. You don't want to tell people to be skeptical to the point they aren't sure if the floor is under them. Basically. Anymore, that's that's a whole different set of unhealthy approaches to what you're doing yeah, in life. And and, and, one, and one thing, you know, for for all my criticisms of the media, um, in through my work, um, it's it's a it's a criticism from a place of love. Like I think journalists, uh, for the most part, do do a great job under very very difficult circumstances. Uh, I think most of them got into it for the right reasons, uh, and they do they do a national service, uh, and so uh, it's important to to keep that in mind too. Like mistakes will be made. Um, uh, reporters are only human. Um, they're going to get the story wrong sometimes, and and just because they get the story wrong, um, or you know, experts, you know, you know, is, you know, as as experts kind of learn more information through the pandemic, some of their messages changed, and this is all healthy. That's the way it should be. We don't want we don't want reporters or or experts to be kind of locked into positions in the face of evidence. We want them to be able to catch mistakes to to change uh, change their message accordingly. Uh, and so we have to keep that in mind. It's not going to get messy. It's not going to be perfect. Um, but they're all doing it for the right. Re- most of them are doing it for the right reasons, and um, and they're doing it under very trying circumstances. Yeah, all, excellent point. I mean, these are ultimately human institutions. What we hope people are looking for is uh, others that are setting up forums for debates and information to be shared. We hope that people aren't looking for their own preferred propaganda tower, if you will. Yeah, yeah absolutely. 
and I think that takes us right to the point where we can do our formal wrap up. So Eric, in each episode, we want to make sure that the guest actually has has the final word. So let me just say we've talked about a lot. If we can bring it full circle and put a finer point on on our exploration of the question today, that'd be great. So let me let's do so in asking you, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on why we don't trust the experts? If someone's going to have one or two things from this conversation that they pull, what would you like those to be? That most people do trust the experts and that and that's and that's a good thing. And you know there are there are times when when experts will will provide messages and provide advice that might be uncomfortable for for you for reasons for your ide because of your ideological beliefs or your partisan beliefs and the like, um, and and all I would say to that is that the, you know they are they're they're not kind of part of the enemy. Um, they are trying to provide uh, the best advice they can under trying circumstances, and so listen to what they say, um, and if. Uh, and if you have a normative or value trade-off that you know makes that puts you apart from them, then you you adjust accordingly. But you don't have to deny deny what they're saying um, to to maintain that. Um, so there there are there are plenty of grounds for healthy debate about pu- public policy um, where we can still acknowledge scientific or expert consensus where it exists. Eric Merkley, thank you very much for joining me on the Curious Task today. It's been it's been great. Thanks for having me. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.